0: Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco For more information about the student ministry, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's student ministry sermon. Some things can be mixed, others can't. If I told you that uh, I like Tex-Mex food, you wouldn't have a problem with that. You wouldn't say, no, you have to keep your Mexican Mexican and eat American food at other times. We're fine with that. It's just food. But if you told your girlfriend, hey, I'd like to date you on Fridays, but I'd like to date this other girl on Tuesdays, it's not going to happen well for you. So we recognize in life that some things can be mixed, others can't. And tonight we're looking at a letter called Colossians, which is about the fact that Jesus does not mix well with others. Colossae was the city that this letter was written to. And to be honest, it's kind of an unimportant city in the ancient world. It wasn't really all that big. It wasn't really all that fancy. Paul himself didn't even go there. didn't even plant the church. But it was along a trade route. And in the ancient world, if your city was along a trade route, then you got to experience all different kinds of cultures and religions and different things like that. So you had kind of a unique flavor to some of these smaller cities along these places where people walked. That was Colossae. So you have this context where there's a bunch of different beliefs and a bunch of different um, commitments and values and then actually a guy named Epaphras comes in and preaches the gospel. He is a guy who had heard the gospel from Paul when Paul was nearby and then he took it to his hometown of Colossae, preached the gospel, started a church, people believing in Jesus, all is well. But a few years down the road what happened was um, Paul and Epaphras became aware of a problem that in Colossae, people were trying to mix Jesus with some other things. You had some other teachers coming in saying, kind of like in Galatia, saying, yeah, Jesus is fine, but what you need is Jesus plus this other teaching. What you need is Jesus and this super spiritual experience over here. What you need is Jesus and also this list of rules that you got to follow. And so they're mixing Jesus with all these other different pathways to try to live a good life, to try to please God. And Paul writes Colossians as a response to this. Now, he can't go off like he did in Galatians because he doesn't know these people. So instead of kind of being all angry and crazy like we saw him there, he's, he's, he, goes, he kind of takes a different approach. And what he does in Colossians is he focuses our vision like a, like a laser, just focuses our vision on Jesus so that he's all we can see. And the entire letter is about the sufficiency and the supremacy and the enoughness of Jesus, that Jesus is enough, and therefore we can be entirely content in Him. What we not, what we need is not something more than Jesus. What we need is really just more of what we already have, more of Jesus Himself. And so that's Paul's focus in this particular letter. So uh, tonight, if you would, just lean in and listen as we talk about the fact that it is true that Jesus plus nothing equals everything.
1: so big it's gonna make you puke I don't wanna puke! I don't want wealth! I just want you like you used to be what happened to that man? Me? What happened to the girl I believed in? The girl I fell in love with? The girl that believed in me? Well there's plenty of places I can go where people believe in me! Well, go! The sooner you're out of my life, the sooner I can go back to being the girl in this little flower dress that you say The ashtray and these matches and the remote control and the paddle ball. This lamp. The ashtray. (laughs) This trouble game and the remote control and the lamp. And that's all I need. And that's all I need too. I DON'T NEED ONE OTHER THING, NOT ONE, I NEED THIS, THE BATTLE GAME IN THE t-
2: Colossians is a short letter written to a small town with a big problem. You heard Michael talk about it. Paul had never even been to this city before. He didn't plant the church there. He didn't start the church there. But he's sitting in a prison, probably in Rome at this time. He's sitting in a prison, gets out pen and paper, and he writes a letter to the church in Colossae because he realizes how significant and how big their problem is. The problem that they had was a problem with Jesus. It was a problem with Jesus. They loved Jesus. They worshiped Jesus, they were following Jesus. They had all that squared away, The problem was they just weren't sure if Jesus was enough. They just weren't sure if maybe they needed one more thing. One more thing over here. One more thing over there. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is terrific. Love Jesus. But maybe I need one more thing. Can I be confident? Can I be sure that Jesus ultimately, at the end of the day, that Jesus is enough? And that's what this letter is about. That's what this letter is about. Uh, When I was doing um, ministry in another state before we uh, came down here to Missouri, um, I remember uh, I was preaching in this this little country church, and um, a woman started coming to our church, and she came to our church for a while. Um, and we were kind of getting to know her as a church, and, and um, she, she kind of came from a rough background. She had some difficulties in her past that she was still dealing with, some addictions that um, she was dealing with, and so we were trying to help her, surround her with love, surround her with acceptance, show her the grace of Jesus. Well, eventually I took it upon myself to go and have a conversation with this woman, just to kind of find out where she was at. Find out what was going on. How could we serve her? How could we minister to her as a church? And and I remember having this conversation. She says, you know, I have come to love this church so much. I love the people. You guys are so loving. You guys are so warm. You're so inviting. I've never been loved like this before in my life. I said, that's awesome. That's terrific. She said, "I, I I love coming on Sunday mornings, being greeted by the people, singing those songs. I love the music. I love the songs. I even sometimes like the things that you say when you preach. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's, that's good. I appreciate that. She said, like, I, I, love, I love it so much. Here's my only problem, though. Here's my only issue. She said, y'all talk about Jesus an awful lot. I said, what, how's that? <laughs> she said, well, you guys talk about Jesus, like, a lot. Like, you, you, you pray to Jesus. You sing songs about Jesus. It's almost like you worship the guy. I'm like, oh, you caught that, did you? <laughs> and I told her, I'm like, I, I tell her, I, I said, I love the fact that you feel loved by this church. I love the fact that you feel like in this church you have found people who will accept you, people who will invite you in. But one of the things that you need to understand, one of the things that you need to know is that we are ultimately, at the end of the day, we are a Jesus people. And this is a Jesus church. And I pray that at some point, sooner or later, you will come to understand that none of this will exist, none of this should exist without Him. And I suppose that that's true for many of you tonight as well. I don't know what brought you to this place. For some of you, maybe it was seeing your friends. For some of you, maybe it was the worship, the songs. You love singing the songs. For some of you, it's a chance to reconnect with people that maybe you haven't seen for a week. Or maybe it's that cute guy or that cute girl. I don't know what the story is. I don't know what brought you to this place. I can say that I'm glad you're here. I can say that I hope you feel loved. I hope you feel accepted. But I also want to say this, that we are forever, unapologetically, a Jesus people and a Jesus church. And it's my prayer for you that if you don't get that tonight, if you don't understand that tonight, it's my prayer for you that at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later, you will come to understand that none of this exists, none of this should exist, none of this will exist without Jesus. In order to remind the Colossians, and also to, in order to remind us, about how, how amazing and how awesome Jesus truly is, Paul, in the letter of Colossians, offers them some of the most important words that have ever been written about Jesus in human language. In Colossians chapter 1, here's what we read, starting in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul has said quite the mouthful there, but he said two, at least two very important things that I want you to hear loud and clear tonight. The first thing that Paul says here about Jesus is that he says Jesus and Jesus alone is the focal point. Of all of creation, he's the focal point of it all. I hear from time to time um, people say, "You know, Jesus was a terrific guy. Jesus was, you know, he said some great things. He taught some great things. Jesus was an unbelievable moral teacher. I mean, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, love all that stuff. Jesus did and said some amazing things. Jesus was a great prophetic man who lived two thousand years ago. He's a great prophet." Maybe even perform miracles. But none of those descriptions that you hear so often of Jesus even come close to what Paul says in the text that I just read. If he says, if you want to see God, then look to Jesus. If you want to see God, look to Jesus. And I'm forced to confess. In reading this text, I'm forced to confess that my Jesus all too often is way too small. My Jesus is way too small. I want to shrink Jesus down, make Jesus manageable, put him in a box. My Jesus is way too small. But he says here in this text, Jesus is the focal point of all creation. Everything is held together by him. The sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies above. The intricacies of human life. The wonder of the mountains. The depths of human philosophy. The thrill of love. Everything that exists. You cannot name a single thing that exists that is not held together in Jesus. And that doesn't exist for Jesus. Paul is being relentless in this fact. He says the Jesus that you know, unfortunately, too often, is a Jesus that's much too small. You need to come to terms with the Jesus who is the focal point of everything that has existed and everything that will exist. He's the center of it all. Without him, everything falls apart. The second thing that he says, though, is not only Jesus the focal point of everything that exists, the center of it, he also says that he alone is the fix for what has gone wrong with creation. Because of our rebellion, because of our sin, Jesus alone is capable of fixing it. In Jesus, all things hold together. Apart from him, all things fall apart. When you look at the world, the state of the world, My goodness, when you look at the state of our lives, and you start to see things come unraveled, you start to see things come undone, when your own life starts to fall apart, when cultures and societies and people start to come unraveled and fall apart, you can be sure that somewhere along the way, we have lost our center, we have lost focus, we have lost our attention on Jesus. Things fall apart when they're not focused on Him. That's what Paul is saying in this text. He holds all things together, and when he's not at the center, everything is going to fall apart, including your life and mine. But there's good news here, too, because he says God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus so that through him, all of the brokenness that we see can be fixed, hope can be restored, peace can be realized. The one who creates and holds all things together has also given himself so that you can be restored and so that I can be restored. And this is the picture of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. That he is the one who holds all things together. And he's also the one that helps you put that puts things back together for you because of our rebellion, because of our sin. In chapter 2, Later on in the letter, here's what Paul says. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that, none of you, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. I want to focus in just on one section of that text. One one little phrase. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. That, That idea of being taken captive, it's a military word there. It's a military image. Paul is warning us about going out in the battlefield. Going out in the battle and being seduced, being tricked by our enemy, so that we're literally led away as captives in shame. He says, be careful that you're not taken captive by these hollow and deceptive philosophies. I know it's a military imagery, but when I I read that text, I think of of a fishing lure. I think of a fishing lure. You put these lures into the water, and they're bright, and they're shiny, and they're colorful. And you you dangle them in front of the fish, and the fish falls for it every time. Why? Because fish are dumb. Fish are dumb, and they fall for it. One right after the other. It's not because necessarily we're so smart. It's because fish are dumb, and they're their own worst enemies. And they look at it like, oh, well, that's bright, and that's shiny, and that's colorful. I think I'll bite it. I think I'll put it in my mouth, okay? And so they they, actually—they don't think with their brains. They think with their stomachs. And so they're lured away. They're seduced away, and that seduction leads to their undoing. And that's what Paul warns us about in this text. He says, there are these hollow and deceptive philosophies that we're surrounded with every day. And if we're not careful, we'll see them and we'll think, oh, well, that's bright and that's shiny and that's colorful and that looks like it'll satisfy me and make me happy. And so we take a little bite. We give ourselves over to it. And before we know it, we're completely taken captive. We're completely undone. I want to talk and the rest of the time I have left, I want to talk briefly about four hollow and deceptive philosophies that I think each and every one of us, myself included, is at risk for, from every single day. Four. First one is this. It's the philosophy that I, I call it the, it feels good, so it must be good philosophy. It feels good, so it must be good philosophy. Every single semester, I give uh, students in one of my classes, I give them an assignment. They have to go and talk to, imagine this, they have to go and talk to an unbeliever. They have to, they have to interview a person who's not a Christian and ask them just a series of, of questions. And one of the questions they have to ask is, tell me what the number one purpose for life is. You're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you don't believe in God, maybe. Tell me what the number one purpose for life is. Can you guess what the answer is? How, who, wants to offer, who wants to guess what the number one answer is? Anybody? Anybody want to guess? Anybody brave enough to guess? What do you think? What do you, how do you think the answer? Yeah. Uh, a version of that. You're close to it, although that's not the number one answer that's given. She said love. What do you think? Number one purpose. Yeah. Oh, close again. Close again. It falls in that category. Most people, though, when they're talking to a Christian kid about the number one purpose for life, they're a little bit bashful about saying just having as much sex as possible. Um, What do you think? The number one purpose for life. Every single semester I've given this assignment, without fail, people will respond and they will say the number one purpose in life is my happiness. Pursuing happiness. And honestly, guys, if we're brutally honest with ourselves tonight, we're not so terribly different, are we? We're seduced away into this this line of thinking that... God's number one purpose for me in my life is just that I'm happy. And so
1: if I'm happy, if it feels right, then it must be right.